Last week, we told this story in Mark, and it's brilliant. It was about Jesus and how he heals this man with leprosy. And he reaches out, and he touches him, and he says, Hey, I am willing to heal you. I love you. And Jesus is then sent outside of the city because the crowds are so big and because he's unclean. And this leper, this guy with leprosy, is now forgiven, and he's able to just go hang out with people. And he starts telling everybody about Jesus because he can't help himself, even though Jesus tells him not to. And we talked about Jesus being worthy of your entire life and about telling other people about because of the immense, unconditional way that Jesus loves even those of us who who are unlovable. And, And I think most of us in some way, when we look deep enough, say, can I really be loved if people know this about me. And today we're going to fast forward. Uh, the first three sermons in this series that, that's entitled Worthy have been from Mark 1. And we're really studying in the book of Mark the ways in which Mark shows us that Jesus is worthy of our entire lives and of telling other people about. And, and so we're skipping three chapters here and you go, well... Is Jesus not worthy in those three chapters? What's going on there? And, uh, we only have seven weeks for this series, and then Easter hits, and we're going to change gears just slightly. We'll still be talking about Jesus. But I really tried to pick passages of Scripture in Mark where we see Mark tell a story, and then somewhere in that story, we see the crowds flocking to Jesus and wanting to be around Him. Because in those moments, I believe we see kind of the worthiness of Jesus through the first century Jewish person who could actually be around Him and see Him. And I haven't picked all those passages, but but that's the type of passage as I was reading through Mark uh, months ago and, and thinking through this sermon and praying about it. Those are the types of passages I picked. But even in the two chapters, Chapters in between the end of Mark 1 and, and the beginning of, of chapter 4 where, we'll be, where we will be today, we see these amazing stories that really do deem Jesus worthy of your entire life and of, of telling other people about it. And so I just want to catch you up to speed. I'll kind of tell the stories really quickly. Uh, to begin chapter 2, Jesus forgives a paralyzed man of his sins. And all the religious leaders get angry. They don't say anything out loud, but they're like super angry. Like, hey... You can't forgive people of their sins. Only God can do that because they don't know the secret yet that Jesus is God. And so they get angry. And Jesus like like reads their minds. And he's like, hey, what's easier for me to say? I forgive your sins or stop being paralyzed? And, And the people, you know, of course it's easier to say to somebody your sins are forgiven because there's no proof there, right? I can walk around saying that. It wouldn't do you any good. But but I could walk around saying that. And, and so they know what the answer is. Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. And then Jesus says, hey, get up, take up your mat and go home to the paralyzed man. And the guy gets up and he walks away and everybody is super impressed. Then Jesus calls this tax collector to be his disciple, his followers. His name's Matthew. And if you don't know about the tax collectors at the time, they're like the low of the low because they are connected to the Roman government who is oppressing the Jewish people. And so the Jews look at these tax collectors and they're like, wow, you're a traitor. I mean, you are a traitor. You have abandoned us. And they rip people off. Even more so than you think they do today, the tax collectors were like, hey, this is how much I'm supposed to collect, but I want to get rich, and so I'm going to need this much money from you. And there was no way that the Jewish people at the time could stop them. And so Jesus calls this tax collector Matthew, which would have been like scandalous in itself. But then Matthew's like, man, this Jesus guy... He is worthy of telling other people about. And so he gets all of his tax collector friends together and he throws a party. And Jesus goes to the party and all the religious leaders again are like, man, this Jesus guy is not doing things right. How can he be hanging out with tax collectors 
and sinners. And then Jesus says this awesome thing uh, in this in this story. He says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so again, he he just demonstrates this love and this compassion that he has for people who, who maybe the religious of the world look down on. And then the religious leaders, they want to trap him. I mean, they, they're getting sick of this guy who hangs out with sinners and touch people, touches people with leprosy. And so they come up and they question him about fasting, obeying the Sabbath. They're like, hey, your disciples are not fasting. And look, they're not obeying the Sabbath in the way that we say that, that, that they should obey the Sabbath. And Jesus gives them these awesome and incredible explanations that are brilliant and again show just how awesome Jesus is and his teaching. And I, I recommend that you read Mark 2. If you're really curious about why Jesus was so impressive and how he taught, just turn to Mark 2 and, and look at the stories there because Jesus, with these deep kind of theological issues where people are like trying to trap him, he just says something and then they're like, oh, we're going to go over here and regroup and try to figure this out. And so after that, at the beginning of chapter 3, people are watching Jesus to see if he'll actually heal on the Sabbath, which was seen as a big no-no. And Jesus looks at him and says, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? And the people are like, I'm not answering that question. That sounds like a trap right there. And then Jesus heals the man and it makes people mad. In the middle of chapter 3, we see one of these passages about people flocking to Jesus. And it's one that I'm not going to preach on, but let me read it to you. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him, to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. And so Jesus, just in that story right there alone, you kind of see his worthiness, right? I mean, the crowds are coming to him because they see his ability to heal, an ability that he still has today. And they see the power and authority that he has over the demons. And they see his love. And people are just coming to him like crazy. In the middle of chapter 3, Jesus appoints... 12 guys to be his disciples and then all of a sudden the pharisees are like well we got to come up with some other plan because there's no way he can teach this good and do this many things and so they accuse him uh, of having his power through the devil and then jesus says this even more awesome thing than the two things i already said that he said was awesome he says hey a house divided against itself cannot stand if i'm doing these things by satan then who are you doing them by And they're like, oh no, he backed us into a corner again. And so again, they're like, okay, we have no answer for that. Jesus says, I'm not on the devil's side. This is God's work in me. And then at the end of chapter 3, his family comes to him and his family's like, you're crazy. Because they don't understand who he is and his power yet. Later they will. And they're like, you're crazy. And Jesus looks at the people around him and he says, this is my true family. And he shows this immense love for people that give their lives to him and become his followers. And then we pick up the beginning of chapter 4, and that's where we'll look again today, verses 1 through 20. But before we look at that, I just want to say I told these stories really briefly. And and it's so easy to, to just, just kind of dismiss the Bible. We know it's there and we know the stories. But if I could just encourage one thing, if you'll read the book of Mark, if you'll just read it and really take it seriously and, and really just like focus on what it's saying, this is what I think. I, I think that I could quit 
talking on Sunday mornings about how worthy Jesus is of your life and about telling others about. And you, you could just understand it based on reading the book of Mark. When you read the book of Mark, it's just so action-oriented and it's flying by and it's telling these amazing things that Jesus is doing. And it's so utterly impressive. Our world sometimes kind of disconnects themselves and, and even Christians. It's like, well, that's Jesus, right? And so it's not that impressive because that's just Jesus. That's what he did. But if you really just read it, you think about these things actually happening and the answers that he gives and the love that he shows, I think that you would come to the conclusion that Jesus is worthy of more of you than you're giving him. And and he's definitely worthy of telling others about. And so uh, just keep that in mind. Uh, we're going through the book of Mark. I encourage you to read it. I've read it several times as I, as I prepared for this sermon series. And it's just super impressive every time to see the action, the actions of Jesus and just the way that he lived his life. And so uh, if you'll just look with me now at the beginning of, of Mark 4, verse 1, I'll start. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out in the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. And so here is Jesus. And the crowd comes. There's thousands of people around him. And the word that says large crowd there can actually be understood to be the largest crowd that Jesus has ever had around him. In chapter 3, it said that Jesus had a rowboat waiting for him so that he could kind of escape the crowd if they crowded around him too much. And think about that. Now, these people just want to touch Jesus because people believe if they can, then they'll be healed. And so every person with sickness and disease after this, this leprosy story, right? They're coming to Jesus and they're, they're trying to get a piece of him. They're trying to touch him. And so Jesus says, hey, have a rowboat ready for me. But here, he wants to teach this crowd. And so he gets the big boat out. Jesus goes out in the big boat and he sits down. He might have sat down because the boat was rocking. But, but also we need to understand that in the first century, when a teacher sat down, that meant that they were going to start teaching. Today, when I stand up, you knew it was time to start listening, right? But in Jesus' time, the, the teacher would sit down and then people would go, oh, he's about to teach to us in a formal way. And so Jesus is out on this boat. And it's creating a natural kind of amphitheater, right? The wind is pushing in the sound, and he sits down, and the crowd hushes. And it's really a beautiful scene. I mean, just kind of try to picture this moment right here. Jesus' popularity is so big and so huge that he has to use the wind in order to amplify his voice because so many people are there to hear his teaching. And so Jesus sits down, and then in verse 2 we read, He taught them things in parables. He taught them many things in parables. The Net Bible, which is a great resource, says of parables, though parables can contain a variety of figures of speech, many times they're simply stories that attempt to teach spiritual truth, which is unknown to the hearers, by using a comparison with something known to the hearers. And so the best way in our modern kind of language, we, we don't say the word parable very often, but the best way to, to kind of describe a parable would be a, a story that illustrates something based on something that could be seen or touched or heard. Or another way would be a simple allegory, right? And so we have kind of these large, big allegories like the Lord of the Rings. But a parable would be like an allegory that lasts for like 30 seconds. And so Jesus is teaching these people in parables. In the book of Mark, 
chapter 4, you see this series of parables, three right in a row, that Jesus gives in order to teach people about the kingdom of God. And here, here is the parable, and I won't explain it as I read through it, because Jesus, it's really cool, it's unique, because it's like one of the few parables that Jesus actually explains the meaning to in Scripture. So starting in verse 3, listen. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Now, the disciples are there, and the disciples don't understand this parable, and we'll read that in a second. But they are like the twelve. They've just been appointed. They're kind of big time now. You know, they're the ones that are always around Jesus. And so they're they're not going to sit there and go, hey, Jesus, it's me, Peter, one of the twelve, one of these guys you've appointed to be one of the future apostles and leaders of the church. And uh, by the way, I know thousands of people are watching us, but... um, what are you talking about? I mean, right, like, could you imagine Brandon, you know, who leads music for us, just in the middle of my sermon going, Chad, that didn't make any sense. I don't know what you're talking about right now. I mean, what, what are you saying? And, and so this is the situation for the disciples. They don't understand it. So they wait, and when they get alone with Jesus at a later time, in verse 10 we read, when he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but those on the outside, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding, otherwise they may turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand the parable? How then will you understand any parable. There's three things that jump out in this little section of Scripture that are very important. First of all, the question of what is the secret. It's also translated as mystery. What is the mystery that the disciples have been clued in on that everybody else has not been clued in? In on. I mean, what what is that? And the word can actually reference like initiation. We kind of know what initiation is uh, when it comes to clubs or gangs and things like that. And and for for people at that time, initiation was like a secret. You get to know something. And there was lots of people around who had these kind of secret knowledge clubs, religions, things like that. And so the disciples seem here, according to Jesus, to have some type of knowledge that other people don't have. And the question is, what is that knowledge. And the truth is, we don't fully know, but this is what's kind of believed, and I think there's good basis for it. It's kind of believed, and this is what I think, that it is connected to their relationship to Jesus and an understanding of his connection to the kingdom that he has talked about. And so it's not that they have any special knowledge at this point about what the parables mean. They don't. They're asking, right? And it's not that they fully understand all the things of Jesus, it's that somehow they understand more than the rest of the crowd that Jesus is connected to this thing called the kingdom. Now, we know that the kingdom is the rule and the reign of Jesus uh, on this earth. And the kingdom exists today wherever you see God's power and His reign and His worship. The kingdom is there and it is expanding. 
But the disciples, I don't even think they understood that at this point. They think the kingdom is going to be this physical thing where Jesus sets up this rule on earth. And, and so the disciples don't even really understand what the kingdom is, but they understand who brings the kingdom, and that is Jesus. Listen to this story that we read, this interaction in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 17. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? The Son of Man is Jesus, he's referring to himself. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So Jesus says, who do people say I am? And they say, well, some a prophet and some Elijah, who's also a prophet. And so these people have these different opinions on you. And then Jesus in verse 15 says, but what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And so here we see that the difference between the crowds that are surrounding Jesus and the disciples, specifically Peter in this instance, is that he understands that Jesus is the promised one who has come to earth to set up the rule and the reign of God. And so the secret that these disciples have is that Jesus is the one who brings in the kingdom. Now, the other interesting thing about this little section is that Jesus seems to say, if you just read it, that he speaks in parables so that people will not understand the message that he is bringing. Now, if you've been around church and you've thought about Jesus much, it doesn't seem like something that he would do, right? That seems out of character for Jesus. And there's really two explanations that that people give. One explanation is simple. It's the explanation that somebody who calls himself Reformed or Calvinistic would give, and they would say this, God has predestined some people to go to heaven and not others. God has, in his infinite knowledge, said, I will determine who gets to come to salvation unconditionally, apart from any knowledge of any belief that they might have in the future or anything like that. I will choose who I save. And this, this paradigm, this theological structure is a lot more than that, Calvinism. But, but at that point, they would look at this passage and they would say, of course Jesus speaks in parables so that some won't understand because Jesus knows that some people are not predestined, are not unconditionally elected to someday be in heaven. And so he speaks in parables because they don't need to understand. That's one idea and that's the easier one. In this passage of Scripture, I don't think it fits with the narrative of Scripture, but that's one idea. The other one, a second view, would be that this, God in His infinite knowledge understood that this was not the right time for those crowds to understand that message. And so Jesus speaks in parables, not so that the people will never know, but so that the people will know and hear at the right time and therefore give their lives to Him. Now, the truth is, on this point, that, that lots of these people will eventually give their lives to Jesus. But let me just give you an explanation of, of how this might work. It's an illustration that I heard in a sermon. It was based on a different movie, but I had never seen the movie, so I'll change it. Uh, the Sixth Sense. Who's seen The Sixth Sense before? A uh, movie starring Bruce Willis. And in that movie, Bruce Willis is a counselor, and he's counseling this young man who believes that he sees dead people. And so Bruce Willis comes into the story in order to help this young man 
understand that he doesn't really see dead people or uh, to fix the psychological problem that might cause somebody to believe that they see dead people. Now, if you haven't seen the movie, plug your ears or something, because I'm about to ruin it for you. This is a big-time spoiler alert. You go through the whole movie. You're watching Bruce Willis counsel uh, this young man. This kid is creepy the whole time. And then at the very end of the movie, Bruce Willis has a flashback, and he realizes that he was shot and killed, and the reason that this kid can see him and talk to him is because the kid actually sees dead people, right? And and so you come to this point in the movie where you're like, aha, I get it, that's a beautiful movie. And some people believe, the second idea about this scripture, is that Jesus teaches in these parables because he wants these people in the right time to have this aha moment where they won't go, yeah, that was kind of cool, you know, the kids saw dead people, but they'll go, uh, whoa, Jesus is the Messiah and I'm going to give my life to him. And so you have the two views here, but there's three things to keep in mind. You can pick whatever one you want to pick. I have good friends on both sides of that issue, but there's three things that you need to keep in mind that will show you where I stand, uh, but they're very biblical. Uh, first is that you need to know that Jesus begins and ends with a call to listen. The first time he says listen is imperative. And so Jesus doesn't seem to be saying, I'm going to say this, I don't care if you even hear it, I'm just doing my job, but you'll never accept this anyway. He seems to be saying, listen. And he seems to be telling these people, in my mind, that if they really care to pay attention, and if they're really open to the things that he is saying, then they may very well accept the words that he's saying and understand them. But he does, no matter what side you fall on, he does quite clearly say to these people, I want you to listen to this. And if he's really just saying, hey, this is it, you're never going to understand, that doesn't make any sense. Second, Jesus will later die for the sins of the entire world. John 3.16 does say, For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And, And so here's the deal about this group of people. This group of people are listening to Jesus after Jesus dies for their sins. And they're there, some of them, many of them, and they're yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. At that point, you go, no, they'll never get it. But then Jesus comes out of the grave. And there's this sermon that Peter preaches after witnessing the resurrected Christ. And many of these people who have followed Jesus around hear the sermon about the the love and the grace of Jesus and what he has offered and how the kingdom has come upon them, and they give their lives to it, and they become part of the first church. And the third thing that you need to understand is this, and that is that God wants all people to come to salvation. Uh, And so uh, it's easy to theologically say, well, there's some verses that say that God just predestined certain individuals. However, there are verses that say things like this. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Now, I think that I've made clear where I stand on this issue. I think Jesus tells this story in order that these people will hear the things that he wants them to hear at the right time, and they'll give their lives to him. I think Jesus is telling these parables not so that these people will never know the gospel story and come to a knowledge of him. He's telling this story, these stories so that someday they will come to a relationship 
with him. I think it is his best plan to see those people know him and end up in heaven someday. And so he does what he needs to do and tells the story in a way they won't understand in that time so that later they'll go, Aha, this is brilliant. The king of the earth gave his life for me so that I could someday get into heaven and have a perfect relationship with God. And so that's where I stand. You can stand wherever you want if you disagree with the Bible. Uh, And so now moving on to the explanation of... I have a good friend who would just be angry. The whole time I was talking, I was thinking about his face. Uh, and, and I could it just, he'd just be so mad right now. Um, I'll probably send him a link to the sermon on our website, in fact. So listen to this point right here because you're just going to be angry. Uh, verse 14, Jesus explains this parable uh, to his disciples. And this is what he says. The farmer shows the word. Some people are like the seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among the thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. First of all, the the word here is probably a reference to the gospel of Jesus. That's how Jesus describes it in other places. That's how Scripture describes it. So we see the gospel story of Jesus, and that is the seed in this story. And Jesus talks about these four different types of soils. And he's talking about the gospel going out into these four different types of soils. And the soils are the soils of people's hearts. That's why this sermon has been entitled Soiled Hearts, because every one of us through life circumstances, through things we've experienced, have different soil in our hearts. And when the gospel comes upon us, according to Jesus, we receive it differently, not because of our own intellect or anything like that, but because of the soil that is our hearts, the receptivity that we have through the circumstances of life and things like that. And so briefly, I just want to comment. Uh, Jesus' explanation is good enough for me, right? I can't explain it to you any better than he can. But I want to kind of comment on these four soils. First of all, the seed along the path. And this is the seed that comes in, lands on a road, lands on a totally hard surface. There's no real soil at all. And if there is, it's it's really bad. And so it doesn't get in. It doesn't produce any effect at all. And here, here's when I read this. And this is going to be offensive to some people listening to me. I offended my predestination Calvinist friends. And now I'm going to offend uh, people who aren't Christians. So, uh, so here we go. Here's the thing that I think. I think most people who, who haven't given their life to Jesus, who have flat out rejected it, said, no, I want no part of that. I think that they believe, that you believe, in your head somewhere and even in your heart, that you've come up, come to this conclusion about Jesus, that he's not the answer, that this story isn't right, that this doesn't make sense, that all Christians are judgmental. I think you think that. You have come to that all on your own. I think because you're American and and you live in our society and, and we have this individualistic mindset, you've gone... 
yep, I've thought about it a lot, and that doesn't make sense to my logic, and that doesn't add up with what I believe because my beliefs are so smart and so right. I think that's what you think. But what I see Jesus saying is that you have rejected his story of salvation, his gospel of love. You've rejected his worthiness, really, and said you are not worthy of my entire life, not because you are smart and because you have all the scientific answers and because you understand logic better than Christians, but because you have a heart that has been soiled by life. And it's been soiled in a way that causes you not to respond to the gospel. And the truth is, I see this to be true. I'm not any smarter than you, but when I look around and I, I have people that have rejected the gospel that I know, and these are friends, these are people that I love, so it's not like I'm saying that they're like jerks or anything like that, but these are people that I know have rejected the gospel. Uh, things like this are evident in their life. They have parents who talked about following Jesus, but didn't live at all like Jesus lived. They have parents who called themselves Christians, but didn't demonstrate the love and the grace and the mercy that Jesus demonstrates in the gospel. And so maybe this is you and your heart, your heart has been soiled uh, by that. And you go, why would I ever accept? Somewhere inside you maybe don't recognize but You go, yeah, that can't be the answer because my heart was hurt by these people who claimed to follow Jesus but didn't actually do it. Some of you have parents who were nice and they, they maybe did live somewhat like Jesus, but they told you that religion was stupid and wrong and for the uneducated and you've bought into that and, and you just hear the gospel and you, and you don't even listen to it, you don't even think about the logic, you don't think about if it could be real and if evidence points to it and if Jesus is worthy of your life based on truth and what we see even in, in history because you go, well, yeah, that's for the uneducated. Your heart is just a solid rock when it comes to receiving Jesus. And other people, they have irreligious friends who make religion sound uncool. And it's like this thing, like if you accept that and it changes your life, then you're not going to be able to hang out with us. And they might not say that out loud, right? I mean, probably they're not going to say, we won't hang out with you. But their lifestyles and just what they do for fun, it says that if you do this Jesus thing, if you respond to this gospel and you deem him worthy, then, then our friendship is going to be hurt in some way because we can no longer do the things we do and have the conversations we have. And so some of you have these hearts of rock because you're looking at your friends and you're saying, I can't respond to the gospel, not because I don't believe it to be true or, or, or think that it would be better for my life to experience the type of love that Jesus brings, but because your friends don't deem it cool enough and so you've hardened your heart to it. Others of you, and you, you probably don't even recognize this, and this trickles down to almost everybody, but, but the philosophy that is that is at the highest academic levels, what happens is those philosophies, they start to trickle down into our society and into the universities and colleges specifically. And so some of you went and you heard who you deemed the smart people in, in your schools and, and even in the teachers, and, and, and they are against religion. And so somewhere inside of you say, well, the smart people 
are against the gospel. And so I'm going to, I want to be one of those smart people, right? You're an intellect and you're like, I, I got, I'm scientific. And, and so you've just hardened yourself to the gospel because you said that's not what smart people do. And, and the truth is, if I could be honest with you, there's lots of really smart, smart people, much smarter than you, that are Christian people and have accepted this gospel. But somewhere in you, you said, I'm going to be hard to this because it's not the smart man's religion. And then media. Media shows you so many things, like one that maybe you don't even think about, but but you look at media and the people who are involved in media and, and all these actors and actresses and singers, and you go, I live a better life than them. And so I don't need a savior. I mean, man, look at how they do things. I'm better off than them. And you see movies and more and more without a clear good guy or bad guy. And it's somewhere inside of you. It changes you. And it makes you think that there's no such thing as morality. And morality is relative. And so you go, why would I ever need a Jesus to save me? Because what is sin? And your heart is just totally hard to the gospel. And it's not because you are going, I'm so smart and I get it and I've thought through this logically. No, you have flat out had a hard heart that doesn't allow you to analyze the truth of Jesus without pre-existing bias in your mind. That's what Jesus says. And I'm sorry if I offend you. I think you're great if you're non-Christians. Part of the reason I do what I do is because I love you. Uh, but, the, but the truth is, it's so easy to just say, I'm just better than that religion. But, but Jesus says, blame him, not me, that you don't respond to the gospel because your heart has been hardened. Because you have a soiled heart that is rock and, and you just don't respond because it never sets in and you never think about the grace and the love and the mercy that Jesus can give you. And you'll never get the greatness of who Jesus is because your heart is a rock. And it may not be a rock to everything. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying like you're a hard-hearted person in that regard and that you like hate people or you're like a bad guy or woman or whatever. I'm not saying that. I'm saying to Jesus, you just have a hard heart that doesn't allow you to respond to the Christian message. Now, the second group doesn't end up much better, but this is seed that falls along rocky places. This soil isn't as hard because there's some soil there and there's rocks mixed in. And, And these people, it tells us, they actually believe in the gospel. They're actually excited about the gospel for a time. In fact, as soon as they hear it, they get pumped up about it and they receive it with joy. And they spring up and they're like, I want to do this, this and this for Jesus. And then over time, you don't see any difference in their life. And they don't know if that moment ever actually really happened. And they're not sure that they're really Christians anymore. Jesus is saying, This is a thing that goes along with your heart because your heart is full of rocks. And let me just point out that these people are everywhere in the American church today. I I just, I think this, this soil is, is just so, so prevalent in the American church today. I think our churches are not producing the fruit that they should be producing because we see rocky soil everywhere. It's these people who one time, at some point in life, said, yeah, Jesus, but they didn't give 
their lives to Jesus. They just said, that sounds nice. He looks loving. He looks accepting. I like the idea of somebody dying for me. And they said, sure, I'm excited about it. But they never gave their lives to him. And I think our churches are filled up with people who said, yeah, I I accepted something, so I'll get into heaven someday. But they have never given their lives to Jesus. You see, when you read the gospel story, it says this, Jesus gave his life to you. Not just so that you could go to heaven someday, but so that you could give your life to Him. And Jesus says some people just have hearts that are full of rocks. And it looks like they became a Christian at some point. But the truth is, they never did. Because, yeah, they said, that's exciting. Yeah, I love what Jesus did for me. But they didn't say, Jesus, because you did that for me, I will give you everything that I am. And when I look at the American church... I just see churches filled up with rocky, soiled hearts. I see churches filled up with people who one time said a prayer and they were excited about this Jesus thing. But when you look at their lives, there is no difference from anybody else because they are not really Christians who have given their lives to Christ. Man, believing something does not get you into heaven. I know you're like, whoa, you can't say that. Well, it's true. Believing in our modern day usage of the term believe does not get you into heaven. Belief in the Bible is a belief that causes you to respond, that causes you to change your life. And Scripture makes absolutely clear, you need to hear this because you're part of the American church, Scripture makes absolutely clear that being a Christian is not about saying something once. It's about a life that that is devoted to Christ because, because you believe that He gave His life for your sins and died for them. Jesus gives us a third type of soil here. He talks about a soil that has thorns, and the seed falls among these thorns. And here's really kind of interesting part about this, is there's like a 50-50 split on whether or not this is about Christian people, the seed that's among the thorns. And I'll be honest, I flip-flopped as I was studying for this sermon, so I'm like a 50-50 split inside of me on whether this references Christians or not. But any way you look at it, These people are not really living like Christians. And here's what Jesus describes. And and if I had to guess, by the way, I'm more like 51% this is referencing Christians and 49% it's referencing people who haven't actually given their lives to Jesus. But I'll just go with the 51% here inside of me. And, and, And you look at this and Jesus describes people who give their lives to Jesus, but then the worries of the world and the desire for riches... And the desire for stuff, it comes in and it makes it so they're not actually producing fruit in their lives. Jesus says it this way, I'll read it to you again. The worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things come. So Jesus says these things come upon the life of either a Christian or a person who kind of looked like a Christian for a little while. And they come and then the person doesn't produce fruit. And when you look at the New Testament, fruit is two things really. Probably more, but mainly two things. Uh, leading other people to Jesus. Telling other people about Jesus and then they give their lives to Him too. And a life that is changed and looks a lot more like Jesus. It has joy and peace and it has righteousness and holiness that is different from the rest of the world. And so Jesus says there are people whose hearts are soiled in a way that they say, yeah, I'll accept Jesus, I'll believe it, I'll actually give my life to Him. But then... All the stuff in the world comes along and it grabs what might be fruit, what might show change in your life, 
and it chokes it out. Let me just give you a, a couple of examples. And, and you're not going to see this first one coming. But I've seen, because I went to Corbin College, a desire for marriage and young people prevent fruit. You see, the desires Jesus speaks of are not bad. Marriage is a good thing. But I've been around lots of people that just want to be married so bad that they don't do anything for Jesus. And the mindset is something like this, and I, I'm not, I wasn't totally immune to this in college. If you go to a Christian college, it's like all around you. You go to Valentine's Day weekend, everybody comes back married, except for you. And so, it's like, wow. But, but marriage is not a bad thing, right? I've seen these people and they go, man, I just want to be married so bad. And someday when I get married, then I'll live for Jesus and I'll do the things that he's called me to do. And I'll really serve him and I'll produce fruit. And so even in something so good as marriage, we see what Jesus is talking about. Another one and it's the one Jesus mentioned specifically and probably the, the most clear example. There are people all around us who have gifts and abilities and skills that Jesus is just calling on them to use to serve him and to produce fruit. But they get caught up in the American dream. They want money. They want the nice house. They want the perfect life. They want the great vacations. And so they lose their fruit and their willingness to serve, chasing after this thing that we call the American dream. And so there's no fruit in their life because their hearts have thorns. And these thorns are really, in some ways, the American dream and everything that it encompasses. And it comes in and it just pulls at them and pulls at them until we don't see any difference between them and people who don't care about God at all. And then there's the last type of soil. And that is the type of soil that is good. It's real dirt. And it comes in and what Jesus says is that it produces a fruit some 30, 60, 100 fold the amount of seed that, that came upon it. It's pretty simple to understand. This is referencing people whose hearts are receptive uh, of the gospel and the gospel comes and they give their lives. So now I want to say something here. I've already talked about non-Christians and their rejection of the gospel. Well, let me be clear to you who are Christians like myself. You're probably a Christian, if we can be honest, because your life circumstances caused your heart to be made up of good soil. And, and so if we go through life, it's easy to be like, I can't believe those stupid people who wouldn't accept Jesus. But here's what Jesus says to you who I think are, are Christians, right? The people that are Christians here. He's saying, hey, there's a good chance you received the gospel and you're living your life for me because of the circumstances in your life. Now, that's not true of everybody, and we'll get to that in a second. But before you start judging people who have rejected Christianity and have hard hearts, remember this that you probably had good soil in your heart. And that came because you had parents who said, I'm a Christian, I think Jesus is great. They took you to church and they lived like Christians. That came because you had people around you, friends around you maybe, that, that were, were in love with Jesus. And they even through high school, which is a hard period of life for anybody to live for Jesus, they continue to live for Jesus. And you looked at that and it softened your heart. And, and you're like, man, the soil is getting better. And, and you can look at your life and things that have happened. And, and the truth is, if we can be fair and honest, people reject the gospel because of the soil in their heart. But oftentimes people receive the gospel for the same reason. And so we cannot walk around going, idiot, can't believe you have a hard heart. Because for some reason, by circumstance or grace or whatever it might be, we have been born into situations that produced good soil in our hearts and caused us to be receptive to the gospel. With this in mind, here's what I want from all of you. This is what I think about Jesus' parable that's so cool. I think once you recognize it, 
And you go, yeah, I have a hard heart. Yeah, my heart's rocky because I did accept that Jesus thing, but I don't think about it much anymore except for maybe going to church on Sundays. Or maybe you have heart with thorns and you're like, man, I've been chasing around after everything, and but none of that's Jesus. And I, I just kind of go to work and I live my life like everybody else, but there's really no difference. And I, I mean, I look back on my life three years ago and I'm not any closer to Jesus than I am now. And I, I can not remember the last time that I talked to somebody about Jesus outside of the people in my church. And, and, and I, don't, I don't really know that there's a difference in my life. And so maybe you have those thorns that are just coming at you and maybe some of you you have great uh, soil and you're pro- you're producing tons of fruit and, and here's what i want you to know about it is this if you're in the first three categories i believe that you can change your your soil that you can rise above the soil in your heart it's not easy it's not easy to, to say oh, i have i'm just so hard to that but I'm going to try to put my pre-existing thoughts and rejections aside and I'm actually going to examine Scripture and say, what is this Jesus guy about and does it make sense logically? I believe that. I believe that you can say, I don't care how hard my heart is. I'm bigger than that. I have more grace from God than that. I'm going to rise above that and I'm going to, despite where I might be right now, I'm going to actually examine this story about Jesus for what it is and I'm going to say, it doesn't matter if my parents faked being Christians and they showed me that Christianity is bad. It doesn't matter if I'll lose friends. It doesn't matter if I haven't been shown that this is right. I am going to examine it for myself and see if it might be real. You can do that. There's others of you who are in this room and, and, and you accepted this gift a long time ago and it, it just faded out. And, and here's what I'm saying to you. I'm saying it's time to, to let the seed germinate inside of you again and it's time for you to say, I'm, I'm not going to let Christianity be something that happened to me a long time ago. I'm going to let the Word well up inside of me and I'm going to, despite maybe the soil in my heart right now, I am going to be a person who says Christianity is now, not sometime long ago. There's others of you who have thorns all around, and I believe you can cut those thorns out of your life. I do not believe that Jesus is saying it's hopeless and the thorns are there. I believe you can say, man, I'm not going to make this life about work anymore. When I go to work, I'm going there for Jesus. I'm not going to make this life about the next vacation or having fun. I'm going to make this life about Jesus. I'm not going to make this life about everything that the world makes this life about. I'm going to make this life about Jesus. And there's others of you who are producing fruit. And for you, this is the message that I hear. When you give the gospel to people, it's sometimes going to be rejected. And and that's the truth. But I believe you have the ability to influence the soil of other people's hearts. We're reading a book right now in our connect groups at church. If you're not part of one, become part of one. Even if you're not, get the book and read it. It's fantastic. And, And the whole premise of the book is that Christians have a job to do in our society today. And that is to make the soil of people's lives better. You see, we live in a time right now where everything that the world, the system that is the world teaches, hardens people's hearts. It says that we can't know history without bias. It says that we do not have a universal morality, but all morality is relative and it's based on individuals. It says that there's no right and wrong and it says also that the belief is okay no matter if beliefs disagree with each other. It says that to tell somebody they're wrong is the ultimate wrong. 
And you need to say that everybody is right, even if you believe something different. And, and so we live in this world that's just hard. And if you're a person who produces fruit, that is real good soil, and you've given your life to Christ, and, and you can see the work of God in you, I think you have a job to do. And that job is to make the soil of other people's hearts better. You need to show them the love of Jesus. You need to say, look, I'm a Christian, and I'm actually trying to follow Jesus. You need to show people that we aren't a religion that's just against everything, but actually cares about people. You need to show people that Jesus and the things that, that His gospel does for your life is far better to accept it than to not accept it. We need to stop pretending that, that Jesus is just something we have to do and start showing the world that Jesus is something that we get to be a part of and that He brings us joy and peace that transcends all understanding and is far better than anything a world can know apart from Him. If you were a person who is producing fruit and you're a real Christian, what I, what I would say to you this morning as you read this passage of Scripture is not to go, oh, those stupid people with their thorns and their rocks and, and their hard ground, but to say, what can I do in people's lives that I know in order to soften the soil? I've said this before in, in different ways, but you know this if you've been around. We, we ran a homeless ministry for two years that through circumstances and, and politics, not politics of the church, real politics. We, we couldn't continue. But in that time, we saw one person give their life to Jesus. That was great. But we knew that every time we went down there, the chances of us being like, here's how you become a Christian, are you ready to pray with me, was .00001. Because people down there had hearts that were hard. Many of them had been hurt by the church. Many of them, when they're giving free meals, uh, they're giving those free meals so that somebody can try to shove a religion down their throats, right? And they're used to that. And so every time we went down there, we knew that we probably weren't going to have these spiritual, life-changing conversations. But what we could do is we could go down there. We could say, we're Christians. We love you want to have a conversation and what happened in that two years despite only one person out of we met over 200 people in those two years only one person giving their life to jesus i know this for a fact there are lots of people out there right now who who is somewhere in their head even when they want to reject and have hard soil and they want to go i can't do that christian thing because they're all hypocrites you've maybe heard that one before they go but i knew those people they weren't hypocrites I mean, they came every single Saturday and they gave them themselves and they showed us love and they didn't try to force anything down our throats. From everything I can tell, they actually lived their lives for Christ. So maybe all Christians aren't hypocrites and maybe I should pay attention to this message a little more closely. And I believe if you are a real Christian, it's your job. This is why we're reading this book in, in part. I believe it is your job to make the soil of our country better because it's pretty bad right now. And if you truly deem Jesus worthy of your life, then you need to go out there and you need to say, how can I make it so that people are more receptive to the gospel? It starts with prayer. And we're talking about seeing people come to Christ and baptizing people up here. And we have people that hopefully you have written down on the cards that we gave you. And if you're not praying for them, then you're not doing the best thing you can do to soften the soil of their hearts to make it more receptive to the gospel. But also, if you're not living a life for Christ that shows that you really love Him, then you are not 
then you are not making soil better. In fact, and this is the honest truth, and I hear it too much, you are making the soil worse. I am so sick and tired. And it's not you guys. I love our church, and I think our church is much better than a lot of people. But I am so sick and tired of people assuming things about me because I'm a Christian and a pastor. I'm sick. I am really sick of people thinking that I am judgmental and I am hypocritical, and that I hate gay people just because they look at me and say, you're a Christian, you must fall into this category. And the truth is, while some of that is just outlandish and wrong, I'm not any of those things, some of that is deserved because the church has hardened the soil of people's hearts by not actually living for Christ and being focused on helping people be receptive to the gospel. And I trust in in our church, the majority of you, and it's one of the reasons I love being here, that when you go to work, I'm hopeful that you're telling people you go to our church. That's the honest truth. And so maybe more I'm saying continue what you're doing. But if you're looking at your life and you can see that it might harden people's hearts, then stop it. I want you to be a person who, who, who can say, I go to Creekside and I wouldn't go, oh, don't tell them. Don't tell them, you know. For the most part, it's not like that, and I'm so thankful for that. But all the more, we need to be people who when they, they hear we're connected to Christ, they go, dang, that's the difference in you. That's why I like you so much. That's why you're so loving and accepting of all people. That's why you're so gracious. So for some of you, change the soil in your lives. Rise above it despite the circumstances that you've faced. Rise above it despite the American dream. And for others of you, do everything that you can do to make the soil of people's hearts more receptive to the gospel. Paul said it this way. Paul said, I become all things to all people so that I might win some to Christ. Some of us just, if we tell people about Jesus, always want to throw seed at them. Just, we're like hitting them with it. But Paul said, I'm doing whatever I can to make you more receptive to the gospel. And it's time that we wake up in our culture and look out and see that it's a hard, hard culture. And we say, what can I do to make those people more receptive? Will you pray with me? Lord, I pray people would be receptive to the sermon. The people I've offended, God, would, would uh, look to your truth, Lord, and, and recognize, God, that, that so often we just reject you, God, um, or not live for you. Even Christians, God, who just live like normal people, God, uh, it's not because we've made these choices. It's because we've seen it demonstrated in our loved ones. It's because we, we've... We've just we've we've hung out with a crowd, God, that that shows us that's the way to do it. It's because of kind of the pressures of this world and wanting to live up to the Joneses, so to speak, Lord. And um, I pray, God, that you would just just show that to people's hearts. And, and Lord, everybody here, I believe, God, it's different levels of of the soil that you describe, God. And maybe we're a mixture. Maybe we have some thorns, God, and some rocks and some good soil. But I pray right now in these moments that you would just speak to the hearts of of all of us, God, and help us to realize where our hearts are, God. And I pray, God, even now, if a person has a hard heart, that they would just kind of, they would, God, just soften up even just for a minute so that they can recognize where they are in regards to just being responsive to you. And they'd be responsive to your leading and your guiding in their heart right now, Lord. Um, and God, I pray that we would just know, I mean, what our hearts are filled with, uh, stone or 
rocks, God, or, or nothing, Lord, or weeds, God, and thorns. And I pray that, that Lord, every person, and this is the harder part, God, as they recognize that, I pray, Lord Jesus, by, by only by your power and your presence in this place, they would make decisions right now, God, to rise above the soil, that you would change the soil, God, and that they would say, I'm, I'm going to give my life to Jesus and I'm going to live my life for Jesus. No matter where they've been, no matter what they've been taught, let them be softer to your truth. Maybe some people are just really hard here right now, God. Um, and I pray that, that, that in them they would just be receptive to being softened. And I, I know people, God, who being softened to your gospel is, is like the last thing that they'll ever want to do. Uh, but I pray, God, that you just work on them, Lord, and, and just let them think about that and consider that. And, and God, let them recognize that, that, that they don't have life abundantly as you describe it in your word. Jesus, I, I just pray that, that we would live entirely for you. God, I pray that you keep bringing people into our church that, that, that don't know you, God, but I keep praying that you turn people that are already into our church into people who are producing fruit, God. I thank you for the work you've been doing in that way, and I pray that that would continue, God. I thank you, Lord, for your gift of salvation. And doing something, Lord, that, that when we look at it, I believe it, it should soften our hearts just by, by sacrificing yourself on a cross. And, and Lord, I, I, I just thank you. I'm blown away by the, by the fact that you would do that for me, a wretched sinner, and for all of humanity, God. pray these things in your name. Amen.